Hello and welcome back to the SA Pioneering Podcast. In this episode, we hear from Michael Beck, who shares a talk on contextual intelligence at the Salvation Army's Emerge Pioneer Gathering in May 2021. Reverend Dr. Michael Beck is the director of the Fresh Expressions House of Studies at United Theological Seminary, director of remissioning for Fresh Expressions US, and cultivator of Fresh Expressions Florida UMC. He is a spiritual guide who helps people heal, love and unleash imagination to create better lives, organisations and communities. Michael and his wife Jill are co-pastors of Wildwood St Mark's UMCs and a network of 13 fresh expressions of gathering in tattoo parlours, dog parks, burrito joints, yoga studios and digital spaces. They direct an inpatient rehab, homeless shelter and interracial unity movement. Michael is the author of six books in the Missional Church stream. As always, there are some great questions raised in this talk, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. If you'd like to carry on the conversation, please join our SA Pioneering Discussion Group on Facebook. To find it, search SA Pioneering Podcast on Facebook, and it should be there. So now let's hear from Michael on contextual intelligence. So it is uh, contextual intelligence, not constructive intelligence or cognitive intelligence here, okay? Um, And um, I do wanna just say up front that I know that you are from our future. And and a lot of what we're doing over here in the States is watching you and learning from you, trying to, um, um, you know, shortcut a little bit of our failures uh, and and learn from, from your experience. And we know that you are, ahead of us in post-Christendom and and ahead of us also in this missional movement of finding new and creative ways to share the gospel um, in in the world. Um, So I'm really honored to be here and um, learning right alongside you, failing forward right alongside you. Um, Most days I can tell you as a practitioner of ministry, what we're doing on a daily basis, a lot of this, And we're just trying to find which way the wind of the spirit is blowing and get in that stream. Uh, Anybody, I think they would say, we've got ministry figured out how to do this in the pandemic. Just do it like this. That would be highly uh, suspect and sketchy. Can I get an amen on that? Um, And so what I want to share about contextual intelligence, how do we grow in our ability to read our context, uh, to know and to love and be an incarnational presence in our context? And there's two key terms uh, that I'll just kind of lead off with here. Leadership um, is about energizing a community of people toward accomplishing some shared mission. So I want to challenge kind of our what we usually think about when we think about leadership. It's really all about followership. It's about following Jesus well. Um, but then contextual intelligence is the ability to accurately diagnose the context and make correct decisions regarding what to do. So I quickly want to kind of just run through a scriptural, um, the foundations for this, and then look at kind of uh, what it looks like. And then in the second part of my talk, I'll uh, break into some um, a a framework and a palette of competencies for us to think about this. But the first task of a leader is to paint an accurate picture of reality, to kind of be able to put a pin in the map and say, this is where we are. Maybe this is where we've come. And maybe we see this is where we're heading. We emphasize a lot the prophetic gift in the community of faith, um, that, that prophets speak God's truth into the now, 
and, and sometimes that includes kind of future casting, if you will, but it's really about holding people to fidelity to God's truth, a profound and beautiful gift. But also in the scriptures, there's this wonderful gift of, that God's given to the church of those that are futurists, those that, that can kind of see God's, what God's doing um, and, and can read the signs of the times and know what to do. There's some crossover there between futurists and prophets, um, but, but there's also kind of this unique stream of giftedness that, uh, in the whole witness of scripture. And um, contextual intelligence, where we find that, is in this passage in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, uh, these, these people named Issachar, the tribe of Issachar. And in First Chronicles, so all the different tribes are coming to David and they're bringing their different gifts. Some are bringing weaponry and people power and uh, provisions. Uh, we're transitioning from Saul's leadership to David's leadership. So it's a time of liminality uh, and disorientation and a changing of, of leadership, if you will. And the Issacharians show up and they come empty handed, but they have a distinct kind of intelligence. It said that they were the ones who understood the times and knew what to do. They could read the signs of the times and knew what to do. A person that we see really embody this in the Old Testament is a guy named Tola. And uh, Tola follows after this total train wreck of a judge named Abimelech. And Abimelech, we get a whole chapter about Abimelech. Abimelech is uh, a narcissist. He's, uh, you know, the greatest that ever was. There's no one ever been anybody like me, the great Abimelech. Uh, he's killing people. He's trying to solidify his reign. A woman throws a, a millstone out of a tower, strikes him on the head. He's so arrogant and proud. He says, you know, somebody run me through so it won't be said the great Abimelech died at the hands of a woman, right? So we get a whole chapter of Abimelech's in the headlines all the time. Um, come along to Issachar, to Tola just two verses. He quietly, humbly ruled uh, as a judge over Israel for 23 years. Um, and what some Jewish biblical scholars have said, epochal serenity, um, uh, a biblical brevity equals epochal serenity. So not a lot of headlines around Tola. He just is quietly judging, ruling the people, guiding them through a time of peace and prosperity. I won't try to make any um, modern connections to uh, things that may or may not be happening in the United States. But uh, anyway, so, but what we see there is two very distinct leadership styles. So there's this positional, hierarchical, uh, individualistic approach of Bimelech, right? Um, reigning and ruling over the people as, as leader and the shared, adaptive, collectivistic approach of Tola. Uh, and uh, Rabbi Milvin, one of the great rabbis, who said, uh, that Abimelech sought to lord it over to rule, whereas Tola takes this posture of helping the people, meeting their needs. Um, and we know someone else that embodied that kind of leadership right now. I'll, I'll get to that. But interesting thing, Moses' blessing over the two tribes of Zebulun and Issachar, um, that, that everywhere in scripture where biblical brothers are paired to together, it doesn't end real well, Right. Like uh, there's there's angst and struggle. So, you know, you go back to Cain and Abel. Things didn't go so well there. You know, we, we know how that story went. And then you could think of uh, 
Jacob and Esau, you know, struggling out of the womb. We could jump forward to James and John fighting over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Typically, all through scripture, biblical brothers are kind of at each other's throats. Not so for these two biblical brothers named Zebulun and Issachar. They were actually two brothers that became two tribes that worked together in the shared collectivistic way. Um, and so the, the Issacharians, they exemplify domestic calm, willingness to serve. They're known today as, uh, for their insightful study of uh, Torah. And unlike most biblical brothers, Zebulun and Eskar, they work together. Zebulun, the more entrepreneurial tribe, who's uh, fishing folks who mine the sea of its treasures. Issachar, who stays under the tent, which is a, this metaphor for reading scripture and placing God's story in new context and being able to say to the whole people, this is where we think we're heading. This is the signs of the times. This is what we ought to do. And those two kind of pairing together like that. So contextual intelligence requires a collective intelligence. Um, it requires us to be practitioner scholars. So even though Andrew doesn't like this, it means we have to study cultural phenomenons like Star Wars and Star Trek and be able to communicate in the meaning systems and stories of the people so that we can place Jesus's story in a story that they know. Um, it requires a senius. So uh, I love Alan Hirsch, one of my mentors uses this word a lot um, to the scene. Every, every scene has a genius or a, a zeitgeist or a mindset, if you will. This has to move us from this great man theory, the Abimelech kind of stuff to teams of first-class noticers. So contextual intelligence is a collective intelligence and teams, we use all of our senses to kind of take in our context and to know it. And it requires entrepreneurial thinking, strategic partnerships, working together in our giftedness, you know, APEST, all of that kind of stuff, a shared leadership approach. So it's more like jazz band and less like orchestra conductor, which is most church leadership, right? Where it's, you know, we're directing the band and we've got our sheet music pre-prepared what that's going to be. This is more of people just sit down with their instruments. We all play a part as equals and Jesus is in the center. And we're all in a circle around Jesus playing our part when, it, when it's our turn. So contextual intelligence has these two key components. It's reading the signs, knowing what to do. That reading the signs piece has really two kind of uh, 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 divisions, if you will. It requires hermeneutics, so intensely studying scripture, uh, knowing God's story, knowing uh, how we fit in that story, knowing how to share that story. And then semiotics is this fancy word for just this, uh, the study of signs and symbols and their use and interpretation. So we communicating in meaning systems. And one of the things, and I think we all kind of claim John Wesley is a spiritual forebearer still, but one of the things he did so well was uh, and he went out to the fields and he communicated in plain language for plain people. Same thing the Booths did, you know, in the East End of London, where, where they were among the common people commuting it and communicating in a way they could grasp it and, and studying the, the meaning symbols of the day. And he also encourages lay preachers to spend uh, several hours a day reading the most useful books and studying culture and studying context and understanding um, the world around us. So there's this kind of sweet spot, if you will, of, uh, when you take hermeneutics and semiotics, so we're studying the, the meaning systems of the world and the culture that we live in, 
in our communities and God's story, where those kind of intersect, that's the contextual intelligence kind of sweet spot, if you will. Uh, and it's literally just about reading between the lines of a context, reading the reading in between the lines and knowing what to do. There's this great book uh, by Mayo and Nahira called In Their Time. They were some Harvard guys. They studied this canon of business um, legends over the past hundred years. All of them had different personalities, different charisms, different ways that they went about the leadership task. But what each one of them had um, that separated them from everyone else was what they defined as contextual intelligence. And it was how to make sense of your time. And what other people are saying, this is challenging. We can't, we don't know what to do. They could step in and say, this is not, this is actually an opportunity. Um, uh, and so the sensing of capability um, that, that they have. So Jesus tells us, pay attention. Uh, this little text here. Uh, you know, that I love the message version of this. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. You find it easy enough to forecast the weather. Why can't you read the signs of the times? This is a repeated theme of Jesus' teaching. Pay attention. Check out the fig tree. Notice what it's doing. Uh, he was using the context as the teacher. Jesus is the master semiotician. Uh, all, almost all of his ministry took some place outside of the inherited church, outside of the synagogue and the temple, out where people did life. And he was teaching people as he went along. He, he enfleshed himself, incarnated, immersed in the context, moved into the neighborhood. Um, and he taught the disciples to pay attention. He, he loved using these words, look, observe, consider, behold, watch, you know, look at the birds in the air, see what they're doing, you know, see the lilies of the field. Pay attention to your context with one of his repeated things. We can kind of go all through this, uh, look at his teachings in that way. But I love what Leslie Newbegin says, the idea that one could at any time uh, by some process of distillation uh, have a pure gospel that's unadulterated by uh, cultural accretions is, is an illusion. And I'm sure some of you are familiar with this quote because that's an abandonment of the gospel for the gospel is word made flesh, word incarnate. Um, and so a gospel that's not contextualized is not faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a church that's not a faithful uh, contextualization of its context is not faithful. I love this term terroir, that uh, it, it has to do with um, uh, the epigenetic qualities that make up a particular grape, right? When you taste the wine, you can tell that this wine was produced in these conditions, uh, that these environmental factors led to that production. Uh, well, every terroir, every context has a terroir or a somewhereness, a flavor, a smell, a taste, um, a, 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 a distinct flavor, if you will, a distinct somewhereness. And a church that's not a contextualized expression of its community is not faithful to the gospel. Uh, churches that form faithful to the context, have a terroir. They bear the somewhereness of their community. So I'm going to share this quickly, and then we can break out into our um, discussion groups here. But this is one of our fresh expressions. We have 15 of these out of our church called Tattoo Parlor Church. And uh, it is fully church, just happens in a tattoo parlor. Uh, we, we study scripture. We worship Jesus. We have communion. 
people get tattoos while that's going on. That's part of the practice there. There's Matt, the guy in the Satan t-shirt and horns, uh, taking communion there for the first time in his life. Um, over the last 10 years, we've baptized dozens and dozens of people. Um, there's no sermon as part of this church. There's a sermonic conversation. So we tell a Jesus story. Um, then people uh, uh, talk about their tattoos. And there's a story behind every tattoo. And people go around and share about that. And the risen Jesus is fully alive and emits in this. Uh, and it's a contextual form of church for people that are never going to go to church. They're never going to walk into our Sunday morning or Wednesday night gatherings, no matter how we do it. So we have about 15 of those um, meeting in a Mo's Southwest Grill called Burritos and Bibles. We have one. Uh, all these are led by lay people, by the way, who have are living into their calling using their gifts. Denise, she's uh, in her late 20s when she started uh, Church 3.1. It's a runner's church. They run a 5K together. They pray. They worship Jesus. They take out their phones. She does a little Jesus story. They do their thing. They go back to work. Church happened in a yoga studio, um, the Martin Luther King Jr. building. We have church happening in a dog park. It's called Pause of Praise. This is an 80-year-old uh, pioneer named Larry, who uh, Larry came, said, Pastor, I'm boring. I don't do anything. All I do is go to church. You know, I've been going to church my whole life. Uh, but I go take my dog, Rocky, to the dog park on Saturdays, and I got a group of people that I hang out with there at the dog park. And we said, well, Larry, it sounds like you got a couple friends there. Uh, what do you think church might look like there in the dog park? And we have two little pugs, Vader and Ferdinand. And so we planted a church with uh, Larry. 80 years old, Larry planted his first church in a dog park. Uh, and it's fully church. So the humans come in and have a passing of the peace. The dogs come in, have a sniffing of the butts. We try not to ever get that crossed up. Sometimes you step in, in poop, but that happens in all churches, right? Um, and we have church right out there. So this is um, now a lot of these are happening digitally as well. But so we've tried to re-envision our parish as this ecosystem uh, where every space is a God space. And every person uh, can, I love your saying that not all are pioneers, but all are involved in pioneering. And these teams of first-class noticers who are seeing the, the world as their parish and are going out um, in, in their common hot hobbies, uh, passions, rhythms, things they would already do every week and forming church there in the first, second, and third places in their communities, um, coffee shops and, and workspaces. And now Facebook groups and Zoom rooms, um, like we're having church right here together right now from across the pond. Um, but this is the way we try to see our whole ecosystem, that our context itself is our teacher and our place is our teacher. And we believe that ho the Holy Spirit's gone ahead of us. There's nowhere we go where the Holy Spirit's not already there. And God is inviting us and saying, come, come out here and play with us. Come dig around in the dirt of your context and see what wonderful things might emerge and spring up um, from, from the context where it is. So th this is not a how-to, okay? Um, I, 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 rightfully so, you should be highly suspect of Americans who, with their how-tos and their quick fix, add water and stir, and you can build a Tower of Babel too kind of stuff. So, 
but I do want to suggest that there's a framework and, and some competencies that can kind of help us grow in contextual intelligence. Um, and that it's a lifelong journey of growth, that it's nothing that we ever, I think, fully achieve for sure. And it's really resourced um, in the mind of Christ. It's my favorite passage of scripture uh, in T. Wright, you know, calls it this, this great poem that uh, pre-existed Paul, most likely, that the, the first Christians carried this hymn, um, their theology and their hymnody, um, and that they, they probably sang this together. Uh, but it's the richest, uh, you know, uh, statement about Jesus and his lordship and his incarnation. Um, and so, you know, he empties himself, comes into flesh, uh, comes into the form of a servant, dies on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalts him, gives him the name above every name. Um, and a new community is formed, uh, consisting of all the people of the, the world. Um, join him and and confessing him as as Lord. This is beautiful passage. But if we if we look at it uh in a practical sense, what if we were to kind of see it as a framework? So Paul is saying, I want you to have the same mind in you that was in Christ. So if you have any koinonia, if you have any fellowship, any community, thick community, if you're the church and you're the, the body of Christ in the world, I want you to have the same mind in you that was in Christ. And it's actually the mind of Christ that that unifies us, that uh, calls us to the center, if you will. And so um, Sweet and I tried to break this out in a framework, if you will, or a journey. I like the, the language of journey better, but it starts with self-emptying, incarnation, immersion, uh, cross. Jesus goes to the cross, the pain point, the tomb, this time of liminality, disorientation, um, death. Uh, awaiting for God to do what only God can do, resurrection and ascension, and then new creation. So we started to think about what if this actually is a, a journey for us as followers of Jesus to grow into in our lives? But what if it gives us kind of a, a way to think about contextual intelligence and a process um, to, to go through with our teams in regards to contextual intelligence? And so we begin with unlearning. We often think that we, we have uh, a good grasp on our context, um, and there's typically some things that we need to unlearn, some, some baggage that we carry around emotionally, physically, mentally, whatever, that we have to kind of jettison off. And uh, as Alan Hirsch says, see with fresh eyes, in his book, Reformation, um, to see the world and to see, see communities with fresh eyes. We are talking about in my group how it can be a challenge as um, Salvation Armyists and as Methodists being an itinerant system so we get moved around from place to place sometimes. And that can be a disadvantage um, because it takes time to know your context. It takes time to immerse yourself in your context. Um, but there's also some advantages as well, obviously. But then minding the gaps, which is a, a phrase, one of the many things that we've stolen from you all. Um, is, is looking for the fragmentation in our community, looking for, for the gaps of the fullness of God's kingdom of what could be and what is, looking for the pain points, um, the, the, the struggle. Um, the gaps might be, you know, uh, between racism and equality or uh, food insecurity and, and enoughness or uh, social justice. It, 
every community is going to have its its gaps, its fragmentation. And as followers of Jesus, if we if we take Jesus' incarnation as our our way of being, then we we can't uh, back away from uh, the gaps. We have to move into those and be the first responders, actually, to those gaps. And then we go through this time of disorientation and uh, tomb time, and um, where you know what were those disciples doing uh, when Jesus was in the grave? Well. They were going back to Emmaus saying, hey, we thought he was the one, but I guess he wasn't because he died on the cross. Nobody expected that, right? Um, they were, you know, locked up in a little room with the windows barred, the doors locked. Um, they were praying. They were waiting. And in one sense, they were doing what only they could do. Uh, the only thing they could do, which was wait on the, the supernatural power, and the resurrection power of Jesus. And I just have this feeling like, globally as the church in some way with the pandemic that that we're kind of right on the edge of that disorientation and moving into now resurrection um, and discovery and, and resurrection the risenness of jesus creates this metanoia this shift in mental models this change of thinking oh the risen one was among us all the time and and we saw his wounds he lives on eternally and he's the king of kings and lord of lords so it leads us to this new way to think and sense and and, and um, that ultimately led to the embodiment of something right in this case the church um, and we could uh, take these two philippians and ephesians uh, uh, downward trajectory ascension trajectory we could connect those together and in ephesians 4 jesus gives gifts to the church for the upbuilding um, and and uh, ministry of the church, apostles, prophets, things, and shepherds and teachers, and so on. So there's the embodiment of this new thing. So what if this is kind of a way to think about our communities and to grow in our contextual intelligence? The, the first question can be the most challenging because we're not always aware of what we need to unlearn. What may be false assumptions or what, what mental models are we bringing to the situation that's kind of skewing our perception? And one of the things we learn in contextual intelligence re research is that your perception, that, that you base your action on your perception, not necessarily the reality. And so sometimes there has to be this initial kind of peeling back and, and trimming back and unlearning, consciously choosing to, go, to uh, empty ourselves and to empty into our context and immerse ourselves in our context, finding those pain points, going through the disorientation. Um, and, and I also like to call the disorientation tune time the what the WTF moment, because um, when we're creating new Christian communities, when we're when we're doing this work, we are going to hit a wall. There's going to be a time when we show up. There's only two people there or our key pioneer decides they don't want to follow Jesus anymore or something happens where we hit the wall and we're left kind of wondering. You know, maybe we had it all wrong and we're ready to go back to Emmaus or whatever. But that's the moment where many times as pioneers, if we press through and 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 we, we wait for God uh, to show up in his risenness and to unleash the power of resurrection. If we're doing anything that we can do it by our own strength and our own genius and our own you know methods, it's probably not of God. What we're talking about here is ultimately 
we are powerless and we're leaning into the supernatural power of God. And we are totally dependent on, on God to show up um, and, and breathe on the situation, if you will. So um, if that's kind of where we are in that tomb space, resurrection, ascension space, um, there's a lot of good, uh, hopeful stuff there. But this disorientation time, it, it's kind of Mike Moyna talks about the edge of chaos um, in, in innovation, that, that we're riding that edge of, um, you know, uh, completely falling apart into chaos and completely overstabilized, dampens innovation. And it's in that disorientation that we can really, um, new things can be birthed forth. It's a reset moment. It's a, it's a moment where God, the God who's always making all things new, and show up and do do a new thing. Um, we kind of love to skip over Holy Saturday. We like to get to Easter and uh, jump right over this uh, very important time that the late Alan Lewis has written about. Um, that this is not a no man's land. That something very significant is happening in the tomb time. Um, we have this whole idea of Jesus descending into hell and leading the captives free. Um, and, and all of that, and and Jesus is up to something. When we're in our place of disorientation and tomb time, we have to believe that God is at work and, and, and getting ready to manifest in a new way. And the disorientation, as we've all experienced this last year in the pandemic, uh, gives us the gift of also pausing, um, asking different questions, um, uh, uh, looking not to the old conventional solutions, but looking forward into to what could be, what might be. Um, and, and so this involves us consciously pausing and diagnosing through these three lenses of looking back to what God has done, being present in, in, in the now, and kind of having the foresight to see where we think God is bringing us, what, where is God leading us into this kind of this new space. Um, and I want to I want to get to the, through this so we can have some conversation time. But um, the MIT systems theorist uh, Peter Singe has said the real challenge that that we face usually is mental models. People have these clear mental models of the way the world works, or in our case, the way the church should work, where it can happen, who can lead it, when it happens, um, and and really the the battle for innovation and change and new creation is won or lost in these mental models. And when we're in a disorientation state, we, we really only have two options. And it's to default or to pivot. We either default back to the old ways of doing things and the old models, um, because those are comfortable, right? Like we think about the, the journey in the wilderness um, the, the people wanted to go back to Egypt because it was so great there with the leeks and the onions and we had all the water. We sat around the flesh pots. Oh, yeah, by the way, also we were slaves and we were, you know, beaten by taskmasters and all that. So we idealized the past. Oh, pandem pre-pandemic life was so great in the church. We've been in decline for 50, 100, couple hundred years, but, you know, it was awesome. Um, so we have to know that that struggle happens in us that it's always easier to default back to the way that it was rather than kind of pivoting into the future and reaching for the rope of hope that God has thrown from the future 
and grabbing onto that and saying, let's stay with this. Um, there may be something that God's doing that's fresh and, and that's new. And again, just want to emphasize, um, you know, that we are in this place of powerlessness, that we are waiting for God to do what only God can do in the resurrection state. So um, in, in the little book that Leonard Sweet and I did, there's these what we call FISAs for your situational awareness. Um, and, and, you know, that's a military term that if you don't understand what's happening in your context, your situational awareness is like crucial to your survival. And so we just laid out some, some ways to kind of, um, tools, if you will, to think about how do we, um, you know, live in our context and habit our context. So we suggest unlearning is a key part of that. Seeing the self-evident that sometimes it's right in front of us, but because we walk by it every day or we drive by it every day, we don't notice it anymore. Tracking and trailing some of the oldest uh, human professions um, of using all of our senses, smell, touch, taste, uh, to understand our context, that terroir that I was talking about earlier. Then context walking. It's old school. Uh, the Salvation Army are masters at this, right? What was Catherine Booth doing when she was walking around, when she was struggling with her, her call to public ministry uh, and struggling with stepping into that you know, public preaching role? And then it was through you know, a, a woman who was bringing a jug of beer home to her husband that she decided, I'm going to stay here and listen to the people in this context. And then her whole ministry kind of erupted among the, the poor and the, the broken. So are we walking our context and, and, and taking it in in that way? And being in touch with the context, but not necessarily in tune with the context. So uh, there, there's that line of enculturation and a faithful embodiment of Christ Church um, without, without losing our call uh, to be a holy uh, presence of holy love in the context. Making the fault lines our front lines. Uh, unfortunately, the church usually waits back and we're not in the first responder group or maybe in the last responder group or no responder group. But how do we kind of rush to the fault lines of pain and change and be present? Again, something Salvation Army is a key, a characteristic of your um, movement. And then doing time, the discipline of historical context, it's all that, you know, uh, knowing the past, being present to now and, um, um, you know, leaning into the future. And then learning the lens, speaking the vernacular of the people. You know, like what Paul's doing when he goes to Athens and he, he's quoting their poets and their their billboard top hundred songs, speaking their language, but then sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of that. Taking some time to do some homework and like watch the Star Wars trilogies, Andrew, um, and know that <laughs> the cultural lingua franca of the people. What is good news to the people? What are the stories that they tell each other that bring hope and life? And can those become touch points in our conversations as we share about Jesus? Um, and knowing, you know, we talked about this, every place being a God space and Jesus is in every place wherever we are uh, and being embodied by the spirit and leaning and, and being present to and aware of the stirrings of the spirit in our own soul and in our teens. So I feel like I've, I've just like given y'all a fire hose of stuff for my two times and I apologize about that. Um, but I did want to just um, make the time as, as full and rich as possible. So 